Close your eyes as you travel in space and time. It's 1581, and you're studying at the University of Pisa, in Italy, during the Italian Renaissance. You sit down before lecture begins, and someone introduces themselves to you as Galileo. Ciao! They are, in fact, the same Galileo we have come to learn about today as a foundational scientist, mathematician, and astronomer. The two of you become so close that Galileo asks you to assist him in an experiment in 1592. At the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, Galileo wants to drop two spheres of the same shape and same size, but different in weight. You think, given the laws of physics taught at the time, the heavier ball will surely drop first. But instead, both balls fall at the same time. You're amazed at Galileo's finding. But not everyone is. Some people are angry to have traditional thought challenged. You continue to follow Galileo's school of thought, even when he makes such radical claims like how he believes the earth revolves around the sun. Galileo's belief was contradictory to the church's indisputable conclusion that earth was the center of the universe, but you trust the evidence amassed by Galileo. Unfortunately, the church did not have the same trust. In 1616, Galileo was forbidden from holding or defending his beliefs. Nevertheless, Galileo continued to write about his astronomical findings. After all, he didn't have to believe what he was writing to discuss the evidence. But in 1633, the Holy Office held that Galileo's discussion of his evidence was hearsay and that Galileo should be punished by way of house arrest until death, so long as he refrains from teaching such hearsay. It wasn't until 300 years later that the church admitted that Galileo was correct after all. Unlike our friend Galileo, our thoughts, beliefs, opinions, and expressions are viewed as a fundamental freedom and are protected under Section 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. In the next half hour, we will discuss what Section 2B of the Charter is and why it exists. Also, Queen's Law Professor Sherry Metcalf will join us to explain how the freedom of expression can be infringed while exploring conventional issues through the scope of Section 2B rights. Good morning! and welcome to Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio. I'm your host, Austin Lang. Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio discusses interesting and off-center legal topics that aims to make legal discussions more accessible to you. We strive to stimulate interest and provide information while always being entertaining. This week's show is on Section 2B of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Freedom of Expression. PBSE at the Faculty of Law, Queen's University, cannot provide legal advice. This document contains a general discussion of certain legal and related issues only. It is not legal advice. Please consult a lawyer if you require legal advice. Section 2B of the Charter is stated as follows. Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. Freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication. There are several different reasons why the freedom of expression receives protection by the Charter. One purpose of protecting our freedom of expression is to promote truth through the open exchange of ideas. This rationale is evident through our example with Galileo. Though Galileo spoke the truth in saying that the Earth revolves around the Sun, he was forbidden from expressing his findings. Consequently, it was wrongly taught that the Sun revolved around the Earth for hundreds of years. In this scenario, Galileo's freedom of expression was prohibited at the expense of attaining truth. In light of this, having an open discussion with each other to attain truth is a fundamental principle that premises the freedom of expression. 
Another purpose of protecting our freedom of expression is to promote political and social participation. In fact, this purpose may be the most essential of them all and has been cited by the Supreme Court of Canada as perhaps the linchpin of the Section 2B guarantee. Similar to the attainment of truth, the freedom of expression allows society to reflect on a variety of policies to decide the best one democratically. The freedom of expression also ensures that all persons can participate in the democratic process. Under Section 2B, we have all ensured the right to voice our political opinion. In this way, promoting political and social participation in Canada's democracy is a fundamental principle that premises freedom of expression. The third purpose of protecting our freedom of expression is to provide the opportunity for individual self-fulfillment through expression. In addition to reaching self-fulfillment through political expression, the court has recognized that commercial expression, which allows individuals to make informed economic choices, is an important part of the self-individualization and self-autonomy. Thus, individual self-fulfillment through expression is a fundamental principle that premises the freedom of expression. To summarize what we've gone over so far, we've learned that Section 2B of the Charter protects our freedom of expression, our thoughts, beliefs, opinions, and expressions, and the purpose of having this protection is to authorize free expression to promote truth, political and social participation, and self-fulfillment. Although our freedom of expression is protected under the Charter, not all activities of expression are protected. Before discussing which activities are not included in Section 2B, let's discuss which activities are. In Libman in Quebec, the court stated that any activity or communication that conveys or attempts to convey meaning is covered by the guarantee of Section 2B of the Canadian Charter. In other words, if I try to convey meaning verbally by making an announcement, my oral expression will be within the scope of Section 2B. And if I try to convey meaning by writing down my thoughts and opinions, my written words will be within the scope of Section 2B. And if I try to convey meaning through drawing a picture or through another art form, my artistic expression will be within the scope of Section 2B. So generally, and with exceptions we'll speak about later in this episode, so long as I convey or try to convey meaning, my activity or communication will be within the scope of Section 2B of the Charter. This principle holds even if the content of my expression is premised on hatred, prejudice, and racism. For example, in R. Keekstra, an Alberta high school teacher willfully promoted hatred by communicating anti-Semitic statements to his students. The court found that willfully promoting hate to an identifiable group is an expressive activity and is thus covered under Section 2B of the Charter. As we will discover later in this episode, however, just because an expressive activity is covered under Section 2B of the Charter does not mean it receives unfettered protection. The content of one's expression, no matter how unpopular, hateful, unpleasant, or distasteful it may be, is an irrelevant consideration in qualifying it as an expressive activity under Section 2B. The neutrality and application afforded by the court further indicates that one's freedom of expression is a fundamental freedom worthy of protection, subject only to narrowly defined limitations. Broadly stated, and as we will see and discuss further in this episode, a government body that wishes to curtail freedom of expression will bear the burden of proving that any limit imposed is a reasonable limit, prescribed by law and demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. This may include, as was the case in Keegan, criminal prohibitions against hate speech. In addition to hate speech, picketing, expressing oneself in their language of choice, pornography, voting, and engaging in work for a political party or candidate 
make up a few of the many other expressive activities covered by Section 2b. The freedom of expression even includes the right to receive expressive content, and thus ensures that individuals can seek expression in addition to creating expression. Put more simply, you have a right to listen to this episode of Pro Bono Radio just as much as I have a right to produce it. The freedom of expression also includes the right not to express anything at all. In fact, in Slight Communications Incorporation and Davidson, Justice Lumera wrote that silence can express something more clearly than words could do. Through this interpretation, silence is in itself a form of expression and is thus covered under the right to freedom of expression. As we have come to learn since the beginning of this episode, the court has taken a broad and widely inclusive interpretation of what activity the freedom of expression covers. Though the freedom of expression is widely inclusive, it is not absolute. So, in the second half of this episode, let's explore the limitations of freedom of expression. We'll begin our discussion by exploring how one's method of expression can remove the activity from within the scope of Section 2b. The method someone uses to communicate their expression and the location in which they express themselves can determine whether or not their freedom of expression will be covered under Section 2b of the Charter. Do you remember the reasons why we have freedom of expression? They are to promote truth, political and social participation, and self-fulfillment. Expressive activity should be excluded from the protective scope of Section 2b if its method or location undermines the values that underlie that guarantee. A helpful analogy is provided by the court in Montreal City and Quebec Incorporation through the expression of violence. Violence is an expressive activity because it can convey meaning or attempt to convey meaning. However, when violence is used as a method of expression, it prevents people from having a productive discussion that may lead to the attainment of truth. And though the person expressing themselves may feel more fulfilled by choosing violence as their method of expression, the self-fulfillment of the victim is then diminished. As demonstrated in this example, violent expression as a method of conveying meaning is antithetical to the underlying purpose of having our freedom of expression protected. As a result, violence is an expressive activity removed from Section 2b coverage and protection. For the same reason, threats of violence are removed from Section 2b coverage and protection. At this point, we know that the freedom of expression is widely inclusive, but the method used to convey expression, such as violence, may remove the expressive activity from Section 2b coverage. By now, we should better understand what activity is included as an expression and what activity is excluded. Moving forward, let's think about the activity that does count as expression under Section 2b of the Charter. Once it's established that activity falls within the scope of freedom of expression, the next question worthy of discussion is how the government can infringe or violate that freedom of expression. Professor Sherry Metcalf is joining us to talk about what activity infringes Section 2b rights, how the government can justify that infringement, and contemporary issues involving our freedom of expression. Sherry Metcalf is an associate professor at Queen's University. Her teaching at Queen's Law is reflective of her research interest and includes public law, constitutional law, law and economics, international environmental and resource law, and property law. She has earned postgraduate degrees in economics, receiving both her master's and PhD at the University of British Columbia, later returning to Queens for her LLB and venturing to Yale for her LLM. Her work has been presented at many international conferences, including the Stanford-Hartford International Junior Faculty Forum and Conference on Empirical Legal Studies at Yale and Stanford, just to name a few. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by her to talk about Section 2B of the Charter. 
Welcome, Professor Metcalf. Hi, Austin. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for making the time to come on. Uh, I'd like to begin our conversation today by explaining to the listeners how a government action can restrict freedom of expression. Could you describe some examples of ways that the government can seek to restrict freedom of expression? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think you've already explained to your listeners in the earlier portion of the program that freedom of expression is really, really broad, right? It covers everything people do that can attempt to convey meaning. So one of the consequences of that is quite often our right of freedom of expression is being limited by government. So, you know, some examples you could think of, uh, you know, an example that generated lots of court cases was when government put restrictions in place that um, prevented cigarette companies from advertising using persuasive advertising to get people to take up smoking. So no more lifestyle ads, no more Joe Camel, no more fireworks, no more, right? So all those things prevented the cigarette companies from using advertising, which is a common way of expressing, you know, the utility of your product and the way we persuade people to buy things. So that's one example. Um, you know, we can think of telling companies that they have to put certain things on products, right? That's another way of compelling them to express certain things instead of just giving you a choice about what you're gonna say. There's rules about, you know, whether you can put certain kinds of signs up even on your property or, right? There's, there's lots of rules that restrict the way we can uh, express ourselves. You, you know, for example, might have a policy that you can't wear uh, t-shirts with obscenity on them on public transit, <laughs> right? So all those kinds of rules where there are limits on what we can say and where we can say it uh, are restrictions on freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, important to note a kind of a common theme amongst your examples about how these government actions can even be well-intentioned uh, when purposely or in effect restricting the freedom of expression. But once it has been established that an expressive activity falls within the scope of freedom of expression, and it has been shown that a government action infringed that right, can the government justify the infringement? And if it can, then how does it do it? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, government can definitely justify limits on free expression, and in part that's because it is such a broad right. You know, it's often necessary to put some limits especially when uh, government's concerned that the expression and issue might actually be harmful, right? That's often a justification for limiting free expression. So in order to justify limits on free expression, government has to go through the section one test under the charter. So, so the, the test under section one has kind of two main pieces to it. One is that um, limits on charter rights have to be what's called prescribed by law. This essentially means that any limits government puts on your rights of free expression have to come from sort of general legal rules so that people can know when their charter rights are being limited. And also because these kind of rules, legal rules, prevent government from just sort of arbitrarily limiting your charter rights. So they limit government's discretion in deciding, oh, maybe we'll limit this person's expression, but not that person's, right? So it's a kind of a clear standard that courts can interpret. Uh, so that's an important part of any justified limit on free expression. But even if it has that, it has a second test that it has to get over. And so that's uh, what courts have set out as the Oaks test, right? So it's a more general test that actually applies to limits 
uh, you know, on freedom of expression, but also on other kinds of charter rights as well. And it has two parts to it because courts like multi-part tests. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the first part is, you know, uh, courts will scrutinize the purpose. What's the purpose behind limiting freedom of expression here? And it has to be a purpose that's important enough to warrant limiting a charter right. So usually the standard for that is, well, is it pressing and substantial? So that's the first part. The second part is, okay, even if the objective is pressing and substantial, has the right been limited in a way that's proportional? So there's multi-parts to that as well, right? So the, the, the limit on the charter right has to actually have what the courts call a rational connection to the objective. It's got to actually do something to advance the objective. The second part is uh, it has to impair the charter right as little as reasonably possible to actually advance the objective. And then the third part is when we look at the beneficial effects that come from pursuing the objective, they have to outweigh the negative impacts on individuals whose rights or freedom of expression are being limited. So, you know, you have to go through all those different steps in order to justify uh, a limit on a rights of free expression. So it's a pretty rigorous test. Government bears the burden. They have to actually provide the evidence and explanation for why they actually can show their law meets all these criteria. And at the justification stage, courts do take into account different aspects of the context. And one of the most important things at the section one stage is what's the message that you're actually conveying? And so courts will look and see how close is what you're saying to the purposes of Section 2B? Is it helping to advance truth-seeking? Is it helping to advance political participation? Is it something that actually helps with self-fulfillment and human flourishing? So the closer it is to those purposes, the harder it is for government to limit uh, the expression that we're talking about. So yeah, that's like a long, long answer, but it's a complicated process to justify uh, limits on charter rights. Mm -hmm. And perhaps how uh, rigorous this test is really speaks to how important it is to have uh, our freedom of expression uh, and how uh, protected it is as well. We've recently seen some contemporary examples in which issues on our freedom of expression has been raised, uh, notably the Freedom Convoy uh, in the past few months. You've written a post on the Queen's Law website about this. And you write that the Freedom Convoy highlights the need for Canadian governments to get much more serious in adjusting these threats to Canadians' democracy. Can you explain to our listeners what issues Freedom Convoy raises regarding freedom of expression? Yeah, so, you know, the Freedom Convoy protests, I, I, I think that, you know, obviously some of the people who are participating in the Freedom Convoy protests really were, you know, engaging in activity that would fall within the scope of free expression, right? So some people, especially at the very beginning, maybe were there sort of peacefully protesting, putting forward their ideas about what things they didn't like about government's pandemic policy. And, you know, so that's all, uh, even if you disagree with people's ideas, you know, that that's not required that a person uh, you know, have ideas that everyone agrees with in order to stay within the scope of free expression. 
but you know some of the other aspects uh, of the freedom convoy what you know were much more troubling right and start to fall outside the scope of uh legitimate sort of free expression uh claims so you know there were certainly allegations that you know there were some people who were holding up uh you know, again, not everyone, but some people were essentially, uh, you know, sh showing swastikas or Confederate flags. And so, you know, those kinds of elements really, I think in the article, I said they sort of, they taint the protest, right? With uh, expression that is, uh, you know, it's akin to sort of hate speech, right? It's promoting ideas that essentially denigrate the equality and freedom of others. And so those certainly, at the very least can justifiably be limited, right? Um, even though in theory, they perhaps could come within the scope of free expression, it's not hard for governments to create laws that can limit uh, expression like hate speech, for example. Um, but, you know, and, and other aspects, so the, you know, infiltration of money from, outside interests sort of deliberately promoting, uh, you know, particular views that were, you know, really trying to sort of advance their own interests, right? In one sense, you know, some people might think, oh, this is great. This is just the marketplace of ideas, right? Um, but, you know, in other, in other ways, uh, it's not transparent. It's very, you know, manipulative of what people are actually exposed to. And, you know, it, it's important for us, I think, to think seriously about how these kinds of influences interact with the underlying purposes for which, you know, we really put freedom of expression in the charter, right? How do they interact with our concerns about truth-seeking, promoting democratic discourse, uh, and allowing self-fulfillment, not just for the speaker, but for everyone, for listeners as well, right? It's so interesting that you mentioned uh, the specific phrase, a marketplace of ideas, uh, and that we might be exposed to certain kinds of ideas. Uh, I know that this has been an issue raised with social media, as social media and podcasts as a medium have become um, more and more popular, and they've raised with it a novel freedom of expression issues. Uh, I know the internet has created numerous platforms for personal expression, but private platforms also exercise control over free expression and are not subject to the limitations imposed by the Charter on government actors in the same way that uh, the government has a direct response to Freedom Convoy. Uh, can you explain some of the pros and cons of private platforms, such as Facebook and Spotify's ability to restrict free expression? Yeah, so, you know, this is, it's so interesting, right, when we think about um, how these sort of private platforms and their self-regulation fit into our broader ideas about uh, freedom of expression and, and uh, how important it is for fulfilling these sort of big purposes, right? Truth-seeking, democratic discourse. Um, and sort of historically, you know, I think the thing we've been most afraid of is that government itself, you know, would take control of the, you know, ways that people could express themselves and limit people's ability to engage in sort of open debate and discourse. And, you know, the, the kind of monopolization of platforms where people can actually express themselves is really, for me, I don't know that I have any quick answers, right? But it really raises interesting questions about um, 
whether letting these platforms self-regulate is something that's really desirable if we care about uh, you know, these values. How, how does it actually fit in with that? You, you can kind of see how this is playing out a little bit, right? So you know, we have questions around how do they decide what can or can't appear on the platform, right? One of the things that constitutionalizing free expression does is it does have a certain uh, openness to unpopular ideas, right? And dissident speech. So if private platforms gauge the permissibility of what gets expressed largely based on what's driven through sort of what's popular, right? It can squeeze out unpopular expression and leave people who have controversial views less places where those can actually be aired. And, you know, one of the kind of consequences, I think, is you see sort of factionalization in these private platforms. And so, you know, you're really sort of splintering off different groups. And then you kind of end up with these little echo chambers where people, uh, you know, are not actually really engaged in debate anymore at all. Right. So I think, you know, if we think seriously about what are these sort of larger purposes behind freedom of expression, that's concerning right? Maybe trying to think about ways that government can engage more with these platforms uh, to think about how those trends relate to our need for places where people actually engage. Because, uh, you know, the, the kind of polarization and entrenchment of people's views that happens when we stop actually having interactions between people with different views uh, it, it's, it's also really problematic and, you know, potentially dangerous in the long run um, for our democracy. So, so I think those are things that, you know, the Freedom Convoy is, raises. There are aspects of the Freedom Convoy that are, you know, more general and more structural issues that, uh, you know, governments are going to have to think more seriously about whether just a negative rule in terms of free expression is, is going to be enough. It's certainly a counterintuitive idea. When you think about the internet, I mean, the internet has something for everyone, it seems like. It's just really is a marketplace of ideas. Um, mm-hmm. But it seems like as, as of lately, um, the internet is trying to understand who we are as people a bit better. And they're able to uh, kind of provide us information that they can tailor towards what they think that we'll like based off of the things we're clicking on. And as online platforms become even more integrated into our lives in the coming decades, I was wondering how can we reconcile the idea of what uh, Jacob Shagama describes as egalitarian free speech with large, centralized, corporate, and increasingly algorithmically driven social media platforms acting as the conduits of global free speech? And what steps have major companies taken or could take to ensure a balanced approach to freedom of expression? Yeah, and you know, again, these are like these are such complicated questions, Austin. Yeah, and you know, there's so many different things that you could talk about, you know, in your question, right? So, one, you know, one really interesting thing that just popped out to me a little bit is what do we mean by a balanced approach, right? Like, in some ways, uh, you know, we have this intuitive idea that a a balanced approach is one where we get sort of both sides presented equally, but you know, we know from, you know, the need for sort of fact checking and manipulated facts and so on, that sometimes balance isn't the thing we want, right? 
so I, I do think it can be really challenging to think about how to make these platforms and their self-regulation, if that's what they're going to do, something that is better aligned with the purposes that underlie free expression, right? You know, certainly having policies that were clearer and that had sort of more objective criteria about deciding when to limit expression and what kinds of expression would be limited. Um, you know, I think that's something that at least would be helpful, right? Uh, so that it didn't seem as arbitrary potentially to people what is and isn't limited, right? Because we do definitely have um, concerns slash claims that different platforms have become uh, politicized, right? And so that they're actually limiting expression when it doesn't conform with their preferred, you know, sort of corporate take on political issues or whatever, right? And again, that's something that's really detrimental because it prevents us having these kind of common spaces where people can, you know, be on the platform with different ideas. So, so I do think trying to find, <clears throat> if it's possible, ways to have less politicized criteria for deciding, you know, what expression can and can't be limited, if there was such a thing, that, that would probably be helpful. Another thing about online platforms is that, uh, you know, it's really not transparent to us at all how the information that uh, we can select from gets selected out of everything that's available, right? So this is the thing you mentioned that the algorithms that essentially select and curate the information before we even get it to review, uh, you know, they play a huge role in structuring the kind of interaction we can have with other people uh, through these platforms. And the, the role that these algorithms play, I mean, everyone sort of knows it in general, but when it comes to sort of your specific interactions, I think it's really not transparent at all. And so I think, you know, that's definitely something where, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's sort of ordinary consumers need to be given some kind of a warning label or something like that or whether regulators need to look more carefully at the kinds of information that are algorithmically sifted or, right? Uh, but I do think that some attention to the role of these algorithms is going to be necessary. Again, if we think that information exchange is about truth-seeking, it's pretty hard to see how it's really a marketplace of ideas, right? The marketplace of ideas doesn't necessarily have people sort of pre-selecting uh, what's out there for you, right? It's much more, you know, as your quote said, it's more egalitarian and more kind of atomistic how things get selected. So I think, you know, again, that's another aspect of this that's different from our intuitive ideas about how free free expression works. Yeah, I, I think as technology becomes more integrated in our lives and as we become more with one, with uh, with technology, with the rise of the metaverse, I think there will be certainly some novel issues that are raised and, and some reconceptualization on the freedom of expression uh, with time to come. Professor Metcalf, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to join us in the discussion of freedom of expression. It's been extremely delightful to listen and to hear your point of view regarding these issues. Once again, I'd like to say thank you for joining us today on Queen's Law Pro Bono Radio and to all the listeners out there.
You're very welcome, Austin. And there's lots more people could say. <laughs> You'll have to run a second show. <laughs> Before we end the show, we would like to say that the views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, host, or the Queen's University Faculty of Law. This podcast does not contain any legal advice. Pro Bono Students Canada is a student organization. This podcast was prepared with the assistance of PBSC's Queen's Law Student Volunteers. PBSC students are not lawyers and they are not authorized to provide legal advice. This podcast contains general discussion of certain legal and related issues only. If you require legal advice, please consult with a lawyer. Today's show was produced and hosted by me, Austin Lang. If you enjoyed this interview, you can find more on the Queen's Pro Bono radio website.